All right, well, all year we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus, and today we're continuing a four-part sermon series we started last week called DNA. And this series, we are focusing on our identity as a church, our core values, uh, which define who we are and what we're trying to do here as a church. And our core values, as we say often, include inviting people to worship, uh, which we covered last week, uh, but also connecting people in community, which is our topic for the day, as well as training people for ministry and sending people on mission. Now, at the most foundational level, worship, community, ministry, and mission are like the basic building blocks of the Christian life. You can read, look back in history and read about any time in the past where God's people came together and these four things are always present. But when these values are guided and empowered by our mission and vision, which is rooted in God's word, they become our DNA, encoding for us everything that we need for life and flourishing as a church. Well, today we're considering the relationships that we have here in the church and the value of connecting people in community. And again, just like last week, there are so many places in the Bible that we could go to to see why this is true, first of all, and second, why this should be part of our DNA. Uh, But I can think of no better place than the opening of the letter of, from the Apostle John, an apostle who was known over the course of his life and by the mercy of God as the apostle of love. Uh, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to 1 John, that is 1 John, uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well, of course. Well, let's first read through this text and then we'll go back through and unpack it together. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. This is God's word. Okay, so the the book of 1 John in the Bible is a letter or an epistle uh, in the New Testament from the Apostle John, we said, one of the closest friends of Jesus to the Christians, uh, most likely in and around the city of Ephesus in modern Turkey. Now, the people in this area had initially heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. Uh, And according to church history, John was a leader in this region toward the end of his long life. 
Now, from this letter, we can see that there were problems there to, among the people that he was writing to. People were being led astray by some who claimed to be Christians and yet had broken away from their church and had started a church across town, which happens from time to time. But these people had a very different view of the person and work of Jesus. The true Christians here needed to hear again from one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus to strengthen them and to clarify the gospel for them. And th for these reasons, the Apostle John writes to them here. Okay, let's start back with verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Okay, let's just pause here to start with. So when you read the Apostle Paul, uh, perhaps in the book of Romans or in First and Second Corinthians and so on in the New Testament, you get a much more systematic bullet point type of feel in his writing, in his teaching. Now, John, the apostle, is more artistic to me. It seems that he paints in watercolors. His thoughts seem to blend into each other, and there are so many rich metaphors that he uses. Now, John starts his letter not with a traditional greeting, hey, everybody, it's me, John, but he jumps right in, and he uses language that is, I think, intends, intended to remind us of the beginning of his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John 1.1, not the letter, but the gospel, starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's referring to Jesus here as the Word. So for John, the coming of Jesus was like a new genesis, a new beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the new beginning came the word of God, who is Jesus. So here, even in his letter, he points back to this new beginning because for John, Jesus changes everything. So, so here, he points back to the beginning, the new beginning, but the way of Jesus, for John, this wasn't something that he learned in, in church from a pastor or a teacher or someone. It wasn't something that he learned while he was growing up at home from his parents or a, another relative. John was an eyewitness. And if we miss this fact in the beginning of his letter, I don't know what we're reading. Because he emphasizes this clearly. We see that here. He says, we heard Jesus. We saw him with our eyes. We looked at him. We beheld him as we, as we sang this morning. And we, our hands touched him. John was in a group of eyewitnesses. That's why he uses the, the plural. We heard, we saw it wasn't just him. And this group included uh, men and women who followed Jesus and became his disciples. But also, this was the main function of the 12 apostles who were picked by Jesus expressly to be eyewitnesses to his life and ministry, the teaching and the miracles, but ultimately his death and resurrection from the dead. The apostle Peter described his apostleship, the work of the apostle, like this. Peter wrote, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
So at a basic level, the story of Christianity begins with eyewitness testimony. And this is what John, as an eyewitness, has to say, or proclaim, he says, concerning Jesus, the word of life, who brings eternal life, life with the Father, life in God's kingdom. Jesus, who was with the Father in heaven and had the closest relationship with the Father of anyone, came into the world as a human being. This is the word of God made flesh. We just celebrated this at Christmas. Now, this isn't a, a theory of John's or like a new philosophy that he was working out, some sort of philosophical framework of how to approach life. For John, this is not the situation happening uh, among the people he was writing to. This was not some minor doctrinal point or some squabble over some secondary matter. This was about knowing and believing the truth about his friend, Jesus and finding real life and love and joy and peace in his name. So without a true understanding of Jesus, there is no other way to have a right relationship with God. And so for John, this is of utmost importance. Look at, back at verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Okay, so John was no doubt concerned by the news that his friends, his, his brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom were, were being led astray or deceived or at least confused about their standing before God, their relationship with Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, as a pastor, I grieve when I hear of someone in our church community who has been deceived or led astray or is just simply decided to drift away from Jesus. It's deeply concerning to me, and I'm sure it was for John as well, which is why he says that he's writing to them to make our joy complete. He was concerned for them. He didn't want anything or anyone to harm his Friends, just as I don't want anything or anyone to harm you. But joy in what way? Well, joy, as he hopefully confirms their fellowship. He says, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, the Greek word translated fellowship is, is an important word in the Bible, and that is in the Greek koinonia. And koinonia means something deeper and richer than uh, certainly a mere acquaintance, but even a good friend. To have koinonia with someone means to have a shared partnership in something or to be mutually committed to one another. It's the type of bond that forms when you have a shared mission and shared direction and shared values in life. And this is really what we mean as a church when we talk about connecting people in community. We don't want just a bunch of shallow relationships or meaningless relationships here. We don't just want to boost your friend count on social media where you have a thousand friends, quote unquote, who know really nothing about you. Those types of relationships honestly are corrosive to our souls 
We, we want you here to experience the type of relationships that we were created by God to enjoy. Relationships which are fruitful and meaningful and deeply satisfying. Now, in a way, this should be, this whole concept should be somewhat startling to us because John says that not only can Christians have this type of deep relationship with one another, but that our relationship, that our fellowship with one another is rooted in our relationship, our fellowship, our koinonia with God himself. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this surprising truth is at the core of the message of the gospel. God loves you and wants a relationship with you. You, even you. We have been separated from God by our sin, but because of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, we can be forgiven for our sins and reconciled with God and enjoy life everlasting in his kingdom by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus. Now, one of the effects of this saving faith is the quality of relationship or fellowship that we can enjoy with other Christians. Our horizontal relationships with other people in and outside the church, by the way, must, as followers of Jesus, be shaped and empowered by our vertical relationship with God, which is exactly what Jesus taught as well that the first and the greatest command was to love the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second was like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we fail to understand this message about the word of life, who is Jesus, then we will not have true fellowship with God or with his people. And it's no wonder that John is concerned as John would write later in this, in this letter, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Everything is at stake here. But what is the message? What is the message of this eyewitness of Jesus? What did the people, perhaps in Ephesus, what do we need to hear again today? We'll look back at verse 5. This is the message. We have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin." So when people are, when the people are in danger of being deceived or led astray, what they need to be reminded of, and perhaps what some of us need to be reminded of today, is the gospel. And friends, the gospel starts with God. This may seem like a silly reminder, but I think because of our needs and our wants and our desires and our opinions, uh, since those things tend to be fairly important to us, we might get the mistaken idea that the gospel starts with us. But no, the gospel starts with God. And who is God? Well, God is infinitely good and wise and just and holy. And God's word is, is creative and powerful and true. This is what it means to say that God is light. This metaphor means that he doesn't do evil 
He doesn't tolerate evil. He doesn't even tempt people to do evil because he is the righteous one and the righteous judge of his creation who doesn't lie and doesn't deceive. In him, there is no darkness at all. But it's because of his good and holy character that God cannot tolerate our wickedness, our rebellion, and our sin. The bad news of the gospel is that we cannot walk in the light as he is in the light by our own strength or will. Just try to be a perfect person for one day, thought, word, and deed, and just see how it goes. Now, this isn't just a Christian belief. Pretty much everyone I talk to in the world would be quick to say, nobody's perfect. And we all know it. But the good news of the gospel is not that God is just okay with our sin and our struggling and our falling short of his glorious purposes for our lives, but it's that God sent his son Jesus to live the life that we were supposed to live, a life without sin, but then to die on the cross in our place for our sins as our sacrifice. So through the blood of Jesus, we can be forgiven and purified or cleansed from all the effects of sin. This is how we can have a, a relationship. This is how we can have fellowship with God the Father in heaven. But this also means that how we live matters to God. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, and here I believe that darkness is referring to unrepentant sin, not simply ignorance of the truth. There is a, a way of walking in the darkness when we just don't really understand much about who God is. I don't think that's what John is referring to here. He says if we walk in the darkness of unrepentant sin, we are living a lie. But you might think, wait a second, is John saying that once you become a Christian, you will never stumble, you'll never struggle with sin? Not at all. Look again at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I think this is so helpful because any time that you start talking about relationships, whether it's your relationship with God or your relationship with other brothers and sisters here in the church, it doesn't take very long before you need to talk about how to deal with sin. Especially once you get down below the surface level and you really start to get to know other people and they start to get to know you. Almost immediately, what happens? You start stepping on each other's toes. You start saying or doing things that later you look back and you regret. And the reason is we live in a broken world. And to some degree, we add our own brokenness to this world. Including and maybe especially in our relationships with other people. The closer the relationship, I think the more likely we are to do or to say something that we'll later regret. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And we, in Jesus, are called to live in the light. 
to walk in the light as he is in the light. But even Christians who have a very accurate understanding of the gospel will from time to time stumble and fall in sin. What do we do then? What happens here in the church when you sin against a brother or sister? Or when they sin against you? Do you automatically cut them out of your lives? Do we never speak to them again? Both of those things are tempting. I think John is very realistic, as the whole Bible is very realistic about sin. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, I think Christians shouldn't think we're perfect, but it doesn't help anyone to pretend we're perfect either. In verse 10, John says, if we act in this way, not only are we lying to ourselves, but we're actually accusing God of being a liar about us and our true spiritual need and the depths of our sin. And this is a very serious accusation. But in being realistic about sin, it doesn't mean that God is just okay with anything that we might say or do according to the flesh or according to whatever worldly standards there might be about what is right or what is appropriate. The grace and the forgiveness of God is not a license to go on walking in darkness. The solution is found in verse 9. John writes, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we become aware of our own sin, whether it's something that the Holy Spirit prompts within us as a conviction of something that we said or did, or it comes externally from another brother or sister who says, you know, you were wrong there. We don't have to be crushed with guilt or with shame in condemnation. We should, in fact, feel appropriately bad about something that we did that was wrong, but John says there's something else we can do about it. We should confess our sins both to God in prayer and also confess our sins to one another, as particularly the person that we have offended. But here is just a beautiful promise. If we confess our sins, I believe in humility and in faith that God has already accomplished everything needed to be, uh, for us to be forgiven in Christ. God is faithful and he is just and he will not only forgive us, but purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is how the good news of the gospel applies not only to the Christian life, but to the imperfect relationships that we will forge with other believers in the church. This is the fellowship of Jesus. Well, what do we do with this today? How might we apply this teaching on fellowship and our value of connecting people in community today. Well, I'd like to close with just a reminder uh, of what this teaching means in terms of what unites us together here at Appleton Gospel. What unites us here in the church is not primarily our shared preferences, opinions, goals. Now, that might be true for many other relationships or friendships in life, where birds of a feather tend to flock together. But 
And that might be true to a degree here among, the, among us in the church, but that's not the primary reason why we are to be one. Now, it's also not because we all share the same exact ethnicity or language or culture either. Our koinonia isn't primarily based on what type of music we listen to or who we cheer for on the football field or who we vote for in November. Again, we might have many of these things in common. Many of us do share many things in common, but they're not the most important reasons why we are one in the church. We do not have to look the same or act the same or think the same to have this type of fellowship with one another in the church. Unity does not mean uniformity. We are united in the church first and foremost because we are united to Jesus. And in Jesus, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all and through all and in all. Now, this means that we have far more in common together here than we have that makes us different or separate. In fact, you have more in common with a man who lived 500 years ago in the Philippines who was a Christian than you do today to your next door neighbor who is not a Christian. The fellowship of Jesus goes back and forward in time to all, include all true believers. Despite the fact that your next door neighbor probably shares the same language that you share and lives in the same neighborhood and has many cultural similarities to you, the Filipino man is your brother in Christ for all eternity. And this means that here in our church, you will encounter people who have different perspectives or different opinions and different goals and so on. A worldly understanding of unity would say that you should feel free to ignore someone like that because they are not your people. But Jesus would say, that is your brother. That is your sister. Don't let anything divide you. Now, I know for a fact that we have people who lean uh, left and people who lean right on the political spectrum. I know that we have people who root for different football teams or come from all different walks of life. But again, Jesus would say, that is your brother. That is your sister. Do not let anything divide you. And of course, this is why connecting people in community is so important to us as a church. Because of his great love for us, relationships are important to God. And in the gospel, we see what Jesus was willing to do to overcome the obstacle of our sin so that we might be reconciled with our Father in heaven, that we might have fellowship with God and with one another. So today, do we have the attitude, do we have the commitment to community here that we read about in the scriptures? Or do we see these relationships here as somewhat disposable? 
Do we have that kind of deep concern for our fellowship with one another that we see in the heart of the Apostle John, being willing to confess our sins to one another? Or do we tend to stay kind of at the surface level with other Christians? Do we see our relationships here in our community groups or when we serve on a ministry team or when we're involved in some event or just out having a cup of coffee during the week? Do we see our time with other brothers and sisters in the church as a source of joy? The source of joy that God intended for your life? Or do you see it more as an inconvenience or as an intrusion on your own comfort? Everybody needs friends. Everybody needs a group. Connecting people in community is in our DNA. This is who we are. And it's true that community can be very costly and it can be very painful at times because of sin. But because of Jesus, the word of life, our fellowship is growing and being sanctified with one another and will only ever get better forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would grow in our ability to see and appreciate our fellowship with you. That we would enjoy an active and ongoing relationship with you, speaking with you in prayer, hearing from your word, being guided and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that our fellowship with you would, would spill out with joy into our relationships with other brothers and sisters here in the church. Father, I don't know how to say it any other way other than to ask that you would help us make these relationships as important as they are to you. And I ask, Father, that we would have the, the courage that it takes to get down below the surface level with, with other people in conversation, that we would feel free to be able to confess our sin, that we would enjoy the freedom and the forgiveness that, you're, that, that you give us because of Jesus. And Father, I pray that this community, this, this wider community, the Fox Valley, I pray that this place would be blessed by the quality and the fruitfulness and the meaning and the purpose of our relationships with one another here in the church. Lord, I pray that our relationships would truly be different than any other relationships that are seen in the world because we are not united because we are all the same. We are united because we are in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray, amen.